listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. LTC Pharmacy Podcast. Welcome, everyone. We are on episode three, and Tamara and I are super excited that you're joining us and you're back with us. You know, the other day, there's so much that happens that you guys don't see. I wish you could see like our conversations outside of the podcast. Like the other day, I was at the Arizona Healthcare Association doing a talk there, and I had a story I wanted to share with Tamara. And I can't even believe I'm telling them this because I this story is hilarious, but. I messaged her and I was like, I got to tell you about this, Tamara. And I was super excited to tell her. And I get this response from her that had me very concerned. I didn't really know how to respond at first because in the response, it said, do you have a second? Call me. I'm drinking. Now, what was so alarming (laughs) about this is that it was 10 in the morning. And I thought to myself, (laughs) do I need to schedule an intervention? But Tamara, like, I think we need to clarify. Yeah, we do need to clarify because here's the deal. I was, I met with a client like that Thursday morning at like nine o'clock in the morning. Right. And then I had to, I had to drive someplace. And so what a great time to talk on the phone and hear a story because you're driving, you got nothing else to do. So as I'm walking out of my office to my car, I voice text Scott and say, Hey, do you have a sec? I'm driving and want to hear your story. Only Mm. the voice text came out drinking instead of the word driving (laughs) and so I got in my car and sat down and like was just gonna look and see if Scott had replied and I'm like oh oh my gosh I put I put drinking into so I three and texted back driving I'm driving I'm not drinking of course by that point in time I'd already fully developed how I was going to respond back to her drinking at 10 in the morning but an intervention was in place intervention intervention was uh (laughs) was diverted for that day. So, but there's so many hilarious things that happen. Like you guys don't see all this before we jump on here where we're, you know, trying to do like warming up to the idea of recording these podcasts. In fact, Tamara a second ago was moving around in the mic in the, in the video, I could see her. And she was like, wait a second, can you hear my hair in the microphone when I move? (laughs) I I am not a techie person, you guys. So I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Scott has to teach me everything about this. I got her. I got her back, y'all. So anyways, besides all of that, uh, we're glad that you're back with us. We have a very exciting episode for you today. It is on de-prescribing. And if you hang around to the very end, we might just have a de-prescribing parody song to share with all of you. Yay. Yay, It's awesome. It's going to be going to be great. So uh, de-prescribing though, and and I think if you are in long-term care, so whether you're working with a facility, whether you're working as a consultant, pharmacist, you're a doctor, whatever, uh, but you're in long-term care, we know the importance of de-prescribing because of the amount of polypharmacy that is seen. And through the years, I feel like this number has changed. You know, a lot of people define it as nine or more meds, et cetera, so forth. But uh, it actually has increased, polypharmacy itself has increased by about 200% over the past 20 years. And, you know, we were looking at some data that was out there back in 1997, uh, long-term care residents were on an average of five medications. And then in 2022, 
they were up to 15 to 20 or more medications. And I think, you know, Tamara, you you were mentioning something to me before we jumped on here about a facility that you have as well. Yeah, just the other day, I was uh, consulting at one of my facilities. And as I was going through, I thought, gosh, these, you know, this facility seems like it's higher than average for a number of medications. And so I just calculated it out. It's a smaller facility. But yeah, 27 medications per patient was the average. That's, that's incredible. You know, I think just from hearing those numbers, if you're listening in, you know that uh, that deprescribing is definitely needed in this setting. In fact, residing in a long-term care facility itself is a risk factor for polypharmacy. Yeah. So risk factors for polypharmacy, obviously increasing age, multiple, you know, complex disease states, and then residing in a long-term care facility are all major risk factors for, for polypharmacy, um, which is typically defined now as 10 or more medications. It used to be five or more. And now I think it's closer to 10 or more is the definition for polypharmacy. But you know, when you have a patient on that many medications, there's certainly going to be a drug interaction. There's going to be some adverse drug events, and probably it's going to be the prescribing cascade, right? So there's a side effect, and instead of removing that medication, we just add on another medication to treat the side effect of the first one. And so right. that certainly, you know, plays a role in polypharmacy, but other risks for polypharmacy or falls, you know, falls and fractures are huge in skilled nursing facilities and also cognitive decline when you're on that many medications, especially if you think about combining opioids with benzos or other CNS depressants. Right. And I think for us, one of the main goals that we want to tackle, and especially with our guest host, it, it are some of the challenges to deprescribing, right? Because it sounds wonderful. You know, they're on a lot of medications. You want to get people off. They, they potentially could feel better. It could honestly change the lives of some of these residents and just people in general that are on a lot of medications to de-prescribe. But there's a lot of challenges that are seen, things like patient resistance, you know, people not wanting to change. This has always been this way. It, it, it works. Things like time constraints or even support for recommendations and uh, those those guidelines and things like that that are related to de-prescribing. Yeah, so last year at the ASCP conference um, during the Peter Lammy Memorial Lecture, um, Dr. Michael Steinman was on there. And I, when I went to that, I was so inspired by the work he does for the USD Prescribing Research Network and in his own practice. And so what a perfect person to be on for our guest today to talk about deprescribing. That's right. We have the pleasure of having Dr. Michael Steinman on the show today. And if you don't know who Dr. Michael Steinman is, you've probably been living under a rock. But all things, uh, all joking aside, let me introduce uh, you, Mike, or as he likes to be referred to on this episode of the LTC Pharmacy Podcast as S-Dog. Uh, my Dr. Michael <laughs> Steinman is the principal investigator for the USD Prescribing Research Network. He's a co-chair for the American Geriatric Society Beers Criteria. He's a geriatrician. He's a professor of medicine at UCSF or University of California, San Francisco. And he, in his limited amount of spare time, has over 200 publications. So thank you, Mike, for being on the show today. 
My pleasure. Uh, I'll have to kind of author my papers as SS dog moving in the future. So, yes, yes. Uh, I, I like that. I like that a lot. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, de-prescribing and long-term care, Mike, with you for a little bit. Uh, obviously, those that are listening in, we know the challenges that are faced in senior care medicine in uh, the, the long-term care space. If you're like me and you're listening to this and you've talked to other healthcare professionals, whether that be a PharmD, a PA, a nurse practitioner, MD, RN, LPN, you name it, we understand that people are often on too many medications and uh, we often understand that polypharmacy is a problem in the senior care space. I'm kind of reminded, uh, and Mike, you probably know this all too well, uh, listening to some of your other podcasts, uh, but in 2017, PubMed article came out showing that there was 138 varying definitions of polypharmacy. And uh, 111 were numeric definitions. So despite the confusion on how you might define polypharmacy, we all come with the assumption that people are oftentimes on too many medications or not appropriate medications uh, in this space. And that presents obvious challenges. And that can be from the support aspect of, of a facility or making those changes uh, or from a family resistance. It can even come in the struggle of just the number of residents and patients that we are all reviewing every single month in the long-term care space. Um, but today, I think what we're really trying to focus on is this idea of de-prescribing in this long-term care space. And we wanna look at some tools to do that, some uh, guidance that you have for us, Mike, as well. And for those that are listening to the podcast, something that you don't know is that for Tamara, this is like a celebrity on the show. So she is so excited. Uh, she, had, she she attended his talk at ASCP, American Society of Consultant Pharmacists, last year and has been talking to me nonstop ever since about it. So uh, thank you again, Mike, for being here. I'm excited for uh, this this discussion today. Yeah, Scott, I feel like I'm interviewing um, Peyton Manning right now, like just a total celebrity in my opinion. And ever since I attended the ASCP conference, I've been using the resources of the USD prescribing network. And one of them that I love are the algorithms, the deprescribing algorithms on the website. And so one of them I thought we could cover today, Mike, because there has been such an increase in dementia over the years, you know, 7 million Americans in 2020, predicted to be up to 9 million in 2030. Uh, when is it a good time to start looking at deprescribing the uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitors and memantine um, in the long-term care setting? Great. So, um, so thank you. Two things. First of all, you got to raise your standards. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I'll also just give credit where credit is due. So the, the um, deprescribing algorithms that you're referencing were created by deprescribing.org, which is the Briar Research Institute in Ottawa, Canada, led by Barb Farrell. So um, we, we, we happily disseminate those, but, but uh, they, they really get credit for doing all the hard work to put those together. Um, so in terms of cervamantine and cholinesterase inhibitors, these are such hard medicines to figure out, you know, because we, it's hard to know if they're working or not, you know. And so, so you know, the, the, the clear assessment of benefit is often very elusive. So some of the, you know, so there are some guidelines that they have put together, um, which we can kind of go over in some more detail about what specifically they recommend. But in general, um, the way I like to think about you know, all medications for deprescribing, not just the cholinesterase inhibitors, is if we, if you have a patient who 
you're thinking about de novo, say they're taking zero medications, and then would you add to that medication? Would the, would the indication for a medication be compelling enough that it's worth overcoming the pain of the neck factor, the cost, and the potential side effects of starting that medication? And the answer is yes. Then many times it's, you know, it's, and you're not sure whether it's working or not, or, or there's some uncertainty, then it might be reasonable to continue it. But, um, you know, in, if the answer to those things is no, it might well be a good indication to deprescribe it. Oftentimes we kind of fall into the fallacy that um, just because something is on there right now, it sort of should be continued as the default unless we sort of think otherwise. Um, and so kind of reframing the question can be helpful. Now, it's important not to also say that that it's not exactly the same as starting a new medicine versus stopping a medication. Because some examples, some people are clearly going to be intolerant to a medication soon after you start it. And you can kind of weed those people out, you know, I wouldn't say easily, but relatively easily because you can identify the side effects. So if someone's been taking a medication, they clearly don't have any overt adverse effects that you can assess after probing then the risk-benefit profile might differ because maybe the risks go down a little bit. They're not completely absent, but they're at least you don't have overt harms that you're observing. But then you still have this potential sort of risk, which might be lurking beneath the surface either now or into the future, and then balance that against the benefits. I'm sort of avoiding your question because it's uh, it's it's you know hard to know whether these drugs work. But I guess the question is, if we think that if we're really not seeing a benefit, um, um, is the drug preventing further decline? I mean, maybe, um, but the rate of decline is, you know, there's not, there, there's a, you know, a roughly 25% reduction in the rate of decline if you, for colonization inhibitors versus not. So it's probably not going to make a huge difference either way. And if the patient is not particularly invested in taking that, if they want to really have their best chance of reverting decline, it might be reasonable to continue. But if they really don't care that much, or it's sort of like their dementia's progressed to the point where whether they decline, you know, a certain number of, of, of points on any kind of validated dementia scale versus a little bit more, a little bit less, isn't going to really make a difference in terms of their overall quality of life and their goals. In that case, it might be worthwhile to stop because then you, you know, reducing all the risks of polypharmacy as well as the specific risks of that medication. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it is so hard with dementia meds because there isn't like a blood pressure you can monitor or something like that. And a lot of times when they get to our facilities, you know, their dementia has already progressed quite a bit because with assisted living and basic care, by the time they're in a skilled facility, they need quite a bit of help and they've got a few complex disease states. And also it looks like most skilled facilities use the BIMS to evaluate dementia. I don't know if you have any opinions on when a certain, you know, MMSE or BIMS score gets to a certain point at that time, it's okay to DC, or if, like you said before, it's more of just a benefit first risk. Yeah, I mean, I think more the more the the consensus guidelines talk more about sort of end stage dementia or late stage dementia is a time when probably the benefits aren't so great anymore because the person already progressed to the point where regardless of whether decline's a little steep or not, it's probably not going to make that much of a difference for them. Um, uh, but kind of earlier stages of dementia, it's, I think it's hard to give a specific cutoff. I really do think it, it's this sort of complex and hard to algorithmize balance between, you know, what the patient's values are, if there's any inkling of benefit, um, and any you know, real uh, current or potential future harms they might experience, individualize that patient's risk of those harms. And then putting all those things together in your black box and kind of coming up with a with a reasonable assessment. 
I mean, the other thing that's important to mention, we might be getting into this, is that if we do decide to deprescribe, or if you know the the, the, the patient, clinician, caregiver triad decides to deprescribe the medication, you know, making sure we do so in a safe way, because abruptly discontinuing these medications, especially the cholinesterase inhibitors, can definitely lead to harms. So we definitely want to, you know, so if we're going to deprescribe them, we need to do so safely by having slow tapers. Yeah, that's a good point. When you look at the algorithm on uh, the USD prescribing research website, it does recommend if you can about 20% at a time dose decrease to taper off. But what I do also like about that algorithm is it gives you like, if if symptoms came back within this much time frame, it's maybe due to, you know, um, withdrawal. Or if it's been this long, it might be due to disease progression. And so it does lay it out there for you if symptoms come back, what it might be due to. Yeah, exactly. So it's really important to be alert to these potential withdrawal effects, you know, hopefully which can be mitigated by um, by more gradual gradual dose reduction, but it certainly doesn't guarantee that you're not going to have any of that. So like it says in that algorithm, uh, and just for, for the listeners, if they go to sort of um, deprescribing.org is the site where all these algorithms are, they can also go to deprescribingresearch.org, which is the Deprescribing Research Network website, and kind of link to it that way. But deprescribing.org is sort of the, the main home where these things are listed under resources. Um, but yeah, uh, having kind of some clear guideposts, and this is true for withdrawing any drug, like what should we be looking for um, in terms of adverse drug withdrawal effects? Uh, and so being mindful of what we should be thinking about, making sure we're assessing for those things to assess if the person is having withdrawal and then adjusting accordingly is really important. The last thing we want to do with prescribing is to cause harm to someone. So. But I like how you you brought up, uh, you know, this idea that there's a lot of communication that's happening with these medications, because oftentimes we know that when we have a loved one in a nursing home facility, when we have a loved one that is sick, the first thing we want to do is is find a way to treat them, right? You know, when your kid's sick, you take them to the doctor thinking they need an antibiotic because that's just what they need to be able to get well. And oftentimes I find that a lot of the families, educated or not, uh, if you approach them, that's a it can be a difficult conversation because you're taking away a medication that they may see as as being a benefit or trying to help when you and I know that that it's really not doing that much at that point in time for them. Yeah, it is really hard. And I think that a lot of times people sort of, you know, you know, patients and, and loved ones, understandably, under, sort of see deprescribing as taking something away. We're withdrawing care. There's a beneficial treatment and we're no longer going to give it to you. And that's a really, you know, difficult message to kind of be receiving. And so, you know, it's it's hard, but I think the, the real important strategies is thinking about framing deprescribing in the context of, of doing something positive rather than negative. So our goal is to help your loved one, you know, have, you know, their best quality of life and attain, you know, their goals as much as possible. So here's what we can do to achieve that. And so part of that might be changing around the medication therapy, including deprescribing medications, because we think it might be causing more harm than good or not causing any benefit. But here are the other positive things we can do. Here's like the non-pharmacologic interventions, which of course are probably much more potent in terms of their ability to improve quality of life in the long-term care setting. Um, and so kind of framing it as an affirmative um, uh, action that we can do to improve your care as opposed to, oh, this drug isn't working too bad, let's just stop it. Um, uh, is a much more sort of uh, effective strategy. Yeah, I like that. 
Well, let's move into another uh, disease state that is very difficult to treat, and that's diabetes and deprescribing in diabetes. And as we're all aware, it's oftentimes a very patient-centric type of model, and uh, there's lots of changes that are needed. But uh, I, I think for most of everybody listening in, they're probably wondering, you know, where do I start or when should I even be looking at deprescribing something for diabetes? And is there a focused area to start on? Yeah, well, um, you know, another really great and challenging topic. And I think the the guidance is fairly clear. I mean, so the American Diabetes Association 2023 guidelines, as well as ones before that, basically said in highly complex and poor health patients, which basically applies to pretty much almost anyone in long-term care, um, to not think about trying to hit an A1C target. Like that's not the goal, right? The goal is to avoid hypoglycemia and prevent symptomatic hyperglycemia. Because the benefits of tight or even moderately tight A1C control, it's very unlikely the person's going to live long enough to benefit. So let's avoid like the short-term harm. They can feel crappy because their blood sugar is too high or make them feel bad because their blood sugar is too low. Uh, um, and so the question is, how can we kind of get there the most safely? So the, the things that I think about in terms of medications to deprescribe first to help to achieve that goal are medications which have the highest risk of hypoglycemia and which are the most burdensome. And obviously, insulins are kind of the culprits one, two, and three in that regard. Right. And we know from you know study after study after study that that insulin, whether it be sort of short-acting, long-acting, uh, especially short-acting, but just in general, is like way overused in long-term care settings. Uh, and we can save people so much burden about getting poked all the time with the insulin, not to mention we poked even more to have their finger sticks checked every you know six hours. Um, they're just not helping them. And it's who wants to be poked that much? And certainly not helping their quality of life. So if we can do, if we can stop insulin as a first step, and um, uh, and keep their blood sugar not so high that they are getting dehydrated from you know, profound glycosuria or feeling bad, um, then um, that's a major win. Yeah, I think uh, immediately when you said insulin, I thought of sliding scale insulin, which is seen immensely in the long term care space for a variety of reasons. But, you know, that one is it poses an absolute challenge based on the location you're in. We service a lot of places. So we see some that are willing to go ahead and and DC that off uh, and some that are not. But we see such a difference from what you mentioned, the, the, the number of finger sticks that are needed, the um, just the quality of life improvement when they can DC that off and realize that their blood glucose is is okay. You know, it's, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it really requires a reframe because we are all trained to think like the way we treat diabetes is by controlling blood sugar uh, as measured either by finger stick blood sugars or by A1C. And right. so we just titrate our meds to the blood sugar. We might be a little more lenient or not lenient, but like either way, we're just going for the sugar. But for most of these like you know, long-term care patients, that should not be the goal, right? The goal is to help someone feel okay, better. Right. Um, and so and so, like blood sugar basically has nothing to do with it, except if it's so high as making them feel bad or so low as making them feel bad. So why are we checking blood sugar so much? Um, and can we kind of get away from that mindset and just say, like, let's just make them feel okay. And we'll check the blood sugar every once in a while to make sure we're not way overshooting or way undershooting. But after that, just leave it alone and help the patient feel okay. 
Right. A, a great goal to have for sure on these residents. And I think we would see such an improvement in the quality of life of a lot of them. You know, some of the other things that we see as a challenge with diabetes is obviously creatinine clearance and dose adjustments that are seen. Do you yeah. have any advice on that? I mean, do you have a preference when they are below 30, um, you know, on creatinine clearance as to what you can use or different products that would be uh, better indicated for that person, kind of along the same thought process of what we've been talking about up to this point? Yeah, it's hard, you know, because of course, then we want to avoid the insulins, you know, sulfonylureas. Now there's, you know, it's in the updated sort of 2023 American Geriatric Society beers criteria. There's now a recommendation to avoid sulfonylureas as first or second line therapy for the management of diabetes because they have a higher risk of hypoglycemia without a really sort of uh, effectiveness benefit over alternative agents. That said, if your creatinine clearance is less than 30, that kind of rules out a bunch of stuff, right? Like metformin, and so like the SDLT2 inhibitors are sort of moving down in our creatinine clearance comfort level on that, but but not so far. And so in that case, like a you know, low dose of fonderia might, uh, might be a reasonable thing to do. I think the goal is, um, you know, the hypoglycemia risk for all of these drugs um, is related to the dose. And so if we're not aiming for tight glycemic control, we can often get by with sort of lower doses um, of these medications. You know, the DPP-4s are reasonable, but of course they have other kind of contraindications, um, uh, for example, on history of heart failure. So um, it's, you know, there's I don't have like one specific algorithm in my head. Um, but I sort of just think like big picture, like what am I trying to get here? What can I, if all these drugs are going to cause me problems, I can't use them. And I can still get the patient's blood sugar reasonably well controlled with something simple, then maybe we just do that. Simple and low dose, which got a low, low risk of adverse effects. Right, right. And the one other thing is also important to mention is sometimes, and I know I've certainly made this mistake in the past, you know, um, we don't recognize the adverse effects we're causing. Like I'm thinking about a patient of mine who was having chronic intermittent diarrhea for years and years and years, hadn't mentioned it to me so much. It wasn't on my radar screen so much. And at some point we ended up stopping his metformin. He's like, oh my God, my diarrhea is all better. I was sort of kicking myself. Like, why didn't you think about that? It just wasn't on my radar screen. Um, so it's sort of being attuned to these potential things that people might've been living with for years. They might not be talking about them that much, but really might be impacting their quality of life. Yeah, that's a great point. And speaking of the updated AGS beers criteria, of course, we have to bring up the new um, anticoagulation recommendations that are on there that are causing a bit of a buzz, but so if you haven't seen the updated AGS beers criteria, box one has some anticoagulation recommendations. And of note, um, it's recommended to avoid warfarin as a new start, right, for um, non-valvular AFib and VTE long-term. And also rivaroxaban is been moved from use with caution to now avoid for those indications. And so as consultant pharmacists, I've been wondering since the updated criteria came out, should we, for those patients who are on rivaroxaban or newly starting warfarin, should we be making recommendations to do to use an alternative with less risk? Or do you think if they've been on it for long term, we kind of you know leave it status quo and leave it as is? Or what should we do as consultants? Yeah, great, great question. And you know, so the criteria kind of provide general guidance, but of course, there's a lot of nuance there, which the criteria are not able to to get into. Um, so. 
the 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 criteria you mentioned specifically talk about new starts, particularly for warfarin. And one of the reasons why the criteria differentiate between new starts and any sort of prevalent use is because there is data suggesting that people who have been taking warfarin chronically and are and have not had adverse events, that is, they haven't had a major bleed, and their INRs are well controlled. That is, more more than seventy percent of the time, they're they're kind of target INR. Um, that there does not seem to be actually much benefit in bleeding risk to switching over to a DOAC. So if someone has been on warfarin for a long time, they're tolerating it well, their INRs are well controlled, it's not unreasonable to switch them, but it's also not super strongly indicated. Um, you know, it might be a little easier for them to not have to do, you know, all the blood monitoring that's involved, but you know, if they're okay with it and you're okay with it, then it's not an unreasonable thing to continue the warfarin. The real question is if someone's got a new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or VTE, and you're thinking about starting anticoagulation, which one do you start? Um, and then, you know, there are no head-to-head -head trials from one DOAC to another. We don't know comparatively a Pixaban versus Rivaroxaban versus, you know, Edoxaban or, or, or Dabigatran. But there are lots and lots of observational studies and other ways of comparing. And even though the data are not 100% rock solid because we don't have head-to-head -head trials, the evidence generally does suggest that rivaroxaban does confer a higher GI bleed risk than most of the other DOACs and similar effectiveness for other outcomes. Uh, and there's generally similar effectiveness across the DOACs and warfarin, for, for that matter, for, for treatment, prevention of stroke or, or, or pulmonary embolism. So... Um, so it was on that basis that the that the British Criteria panel voted to um, uh, you know make the recommendation for for rivaroxaban, but there are a lot of caveats. So the question: if you got someone who's already taking rivaroxaban, or that's the only thing on your formulary, says should you switch them over? And again, this gets into the question of individualized care and sort of the big, the larger penundra of things which are important to the person. So if it's a question between, you know, keeping them on rivaroxaban or flipping back to warfarin, probably rivaroxaban is probably, you know, it would be a reasonable choice. That's certainly not the goal. If for some reason they can't handle taking a twice a day medication. So for example, you know, that switching them from a once a day to rivaroxaban to a twice a day, say a pixaban would be problematic. This is of course more true for the outpatient setting with adherence, but it may be true in certain long-term care settings. Then that's another reasonable reason to say like, look, they can only take a med once a day. So rivaroxaban is our once a day medicine, and so that's a reasonable choice. So there are plenty of reasons why rivaroxaban still might be a reasonable choice. But if you don't have those reasons, and you're thinking about especially a new start, then you look and you look at the data, you're like, well, I've got two medications. The evidence is not rock solid, but does suggest that one is safer than the other. And I have the option of using either one. Why would not we want to choose to use the safer one? And for someone who's prevalent using it and they still don't have any contraindications, either one, they could be switched over. And again, it gets to the sort of shared decision-making. Um, do they, um, you know, is the patient okay with switching? Um, uh, it would certainly be a reasonable thing to switch, but it's not like 100% like, you know, desperately required to switch either. You know, the patient's really committed to the river and really doesn't want to switch. It's not unreasonable to, to keep them on. But if you had everything else equal, then certainly, you know, you know, drugs other than rivaroxaban do seem to have a, a superior safety profile based on the data that we have available. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I think as consultants, sometimes we hesitate to we hesitate to make recommendations because we don't want to say recommend them switching over and then some, you know, an adverse effect happens and then the provider and the patient both think, well, we should have just stayed on what we were on. It wasn't causing any problems. So that's another, you know, barrier to deprescribing is our own fears that we're going to ask for a change and then that change is going to create some kind of ill effect and then the provider and the patient are going to wish they hadn't done it in the first place. Exactly. And so there's like, there's, there's like the ill effect of changing. There could also be the ill effect of not changing. Say that person had a GI bleed a month later, be like, oh, I wish I'd switched them to the safer drug. <laughs> not that they would guarantee not to have a GI bleed. So it's, it's hard to know. I mean, so some of the other things to think about, um, about there are, you know, cost is of course a huge issue with formulary coverage. So depending on how the person's paying for their medications, you know, if it's, they're going to be paying a huge out-of-pocket cost for one drug and not the other, uh, it is a shame that we have to be, you know, our, our healthcare system is set up in a way that, you know, th that people are forced with those financial burdens, but that might be real for someone. And that's part of the shared decision-making process. It's part of what's important to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking about getting, you know, hesitant to make recommendations, let's talk about statins for a little bit, because I mean, how many of our patients are on statins by the time they're in a long-term care facility? And I often look at my patients, they're on statins. I look at their LDL, you know, and they're, it's 35 or something extremely low and they maintain on high dose atorvastatin or something yeah. like that. But so when is it appropriate to deprescribe those statins in the long-term care setting? Yeah. So again, this is sort of a, a space where data are limited. You know, probably the best data that we have right now are from a sort of statin deprescribing study that was done was about six, seven years ago. Um, uh, it wasn't specifically for the long-term care setting, but it was for people with estimated life expectancy of, of 12 months or less. Uh, and in that setting, it found that um, people who were deprescribed statins had a somewhat improved quality of life uh, and that the rates of death were similar in this end of life cohort among people who didn't get statins. Now the study was not powered to really detect a difference in death. And actually the death rates absolutely were higher in the people who deprescribed statins. It just didn't reach significance in part because the study sample wasn't huge. Um, but so what do I take from that? It seems like maybe there is a benefit, at least for some people, symptomatically for deprescribing statins. Um, there probably isn't a huge mortality risk. So it kind of gets to the, the question um, uh, of in the absence of data, in the absence of really clear knowledge, you know, wh while these ongoing trials of deprescribing statins, particularly for primary prevention are underway, what do we do? And again, I kind of come back to the shared decision-making framework. In the absence of clear data, you know, we know there are potential harms, there are potential benefits, and then we sort of talking to the patient, what's more important to them? Like, are they more concerned about the potential harms? Do they really want to reap the potential benefit? You know, any inkling of benefit, is it important for them to hold on to that hope, even when they're willing to tolerate harms? I think that's really where the decision-making comes, comes down. Uh, for someone who's truly near the end of life, um, then, you know, then we know they're going to die anyways. And so the benefit of statins to preventing death or major cardiovascular events, it sort of becomes a moot point because they're going to die soon anyways. And so then that point, then the focus is going to come more on this, on the symptoms. And if there's any concern, then it may be concerned with symptoms and clearly the impetus would be to stop for people with maybe slightly longer life expectancy than it, um, uh, uh, becomes more of a, a guessing game. 
my own practice is, I, you know, in general, they seem to be fairly safe medications. Some people clearly don't tolerate them, but plenty of people do, as long as they're used within reason. There's no reason to give 80 milligrams of torsostatin to someone for primary prevention when their LDL is 12, you know? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what are we doing there? But like for someone who's, you know, got a few years left to live, they've already had an MI or a stroke, like they're doing okay. Like it's not a medication. I'm in, I'm in a big rush to stop either for that kind of that kind of patient. That's good to know because I think there's so much you know in the media about statins increasing the risk of dementia or increasing your risk for diabetes. That oftentimes it's families who are anxious to get their loved ones off a of statin or the patient themselves, and so you're kind of stuck in the middle of the provider wants them to be on it, the family doesn't want want them to be on it, and then which you know which way do you make your recommendation? Yeah, and then it kind of gets back to the point of, you know, framing things positively, I think. Like, so part of the, you know, unless there's new data with which I'm not familiar, the concern about statins causing dementia, which was a few years ago, that's been largely debunked by subsequent studies. So that's not a major concern of mine. And the risk increase for diabetes is pretty small. Um, so God forbid someone develops diabetes, we're going to stop the statin then. Um, but that, those aren't like major concerns of mine. It's more about the musculoskeletal side effects um, that, you know, which might be subtle, but, you know, nonetheless impactful on the person's quality of life that I'm more concerned about. So then part of it's educating, you know, the family, um, but we all know that just sort of talking at people and telling them what's right and what's wrong is not a super effective way of communication. So, so framing it positively, you know, what are the goals for your loved one? Uh, what's important for them, you know, talking to the family, talking to the patient, and then let's think together about the best way of getting towards those goals. And then framing it positively can make it more of an interactive conversation rather than uh, about any one specific therapy, yes or no. We've covered a lot on today's episode, and we always like to wrap up each of our LTC Pharmacy podcast episodes talking about some practical approaches that we as clinicians can take. And so I'm just going to ask you, you know, to kind of summarize, maybe some some quick ideas or ways to start maybe being more effective. Let's start with our consultant pharmacists that are listening. And how can a consultant pharmacist be more effective in their efforts to de-prescribe? Oh, I mean, lots and lots and lots of ways. Um, so some of the, I think there's a, a few useful things. You know, first of all, is that, you know, I'm a physician and, you know, like the rest of us, like we just get, we're busy, you know, everyone's busy. And so we just get sucked into by inertia. And if a medication has been sitting on the medication for a list for a long time, it's not causing an obvious problem. It's just likely to stay there because it takes time and energy to address it that we don't have. It's just on the back, back burner always. And so the consultant pharmacist really kind of taking fresh eyes and looking at the entirety of the medication list and asking the question, is this thing still really needed or might this be causing harm? It's just really, really valuable. Kind of just, just put fresh eyes on the problem. Um, the second thing I think is helping with these questions about shared decision-making and thinking about alternatives and, and framing things as, as positive alternatives. It's not just like, you're a you know bad prescriber because you gave this person a bad medication. But hey, let's think about like if the goal is to get here, here might be a safer, more effective way to do it. And here's some practical guidance about how to you know cross titrate or to stop that one medication with a taper. Um, so I think just like the the the, the pragmatic guidance about about um, working affirmatively to kind of get the patient to to a better place, I think are some of the most effective and helpful um, 
strategies. And what about, so we have uh, nursing homes listening in, other healthcare professionals, anything that you want to toss out for them uh, in those settings to be effective or to help aid in this journey of deprescribing? Um, I guess the two things I might think of is this is really just a team effort, right? None, no one of us holds like all the keys to the castle in terms of figuring out what's the right thing for the patient, much less knowing what the right thing to do is in general. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big fan of just really trying to work interprofessionally and collaboratively as much as possible. You know, two heads are better than one and having fresh eyes on an idea or different ways of approaching something are super useful. And then the other thing I would sort of say is that, you know, so much of this comes down to, you know, communication and, and shared decision making, you know, because push comes to shove. Like a lot of the drugs we give to help patients probably don't help them that much. And a lot of drugs we're worried about causing harm probably don't cause that much harm. Like everyone who gets a fall risk-inducing drug doesn't fall. Or if they do, it's not necessarily because of the drug. Um, right. And every person who gets a statin doesn't stop having MIs. So, so the, the benefits and harms of drug, it's not like everyone benefits or everyone is harmed. Um, so then, but we know for sure that if we stop a drug or start a drug that a patient doesn't like and they're angry about it, then for sure we have caused harm they're worried about it. So really thinking about, you know, it doesn't mean we should just do what, you know, patients, families demand, but, but thinking about that communication strategy and what's important for them um, and really kind of bringing the patient, the family in on the conversation, I think it's just a really useful way of, 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 um, of improving pharmacotherapy in a way that really kind of helps this benefits as broadly construed in terms of the person's physical health, but also their emotional health and their comfort with their health care. Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes as consultants, you know, what we see, we don't know the patient as well as a provider yeah. or the nurses. So you see a patient as a medication list. And we always have to remember that there's a patient behind that medication list. And how are they doing? How are they feeling? And so if they're happy on their medications, although it might be a potentially inappropriate medication, if they're happy being on it and would rather be on it, then that's their decision. And we want ultimately what's best for them. Exactly. And I think also like, you know, and, and helping to educate the prescribers on the, the the risks of different medications. Like if there's a medication that's potentially problematic, is this just like a minor thing or is this like a really big deal? Uh, and, you know, because of, of course, you know, there's like, you know, so many drug-drug interaction alerts and everything else. And some of them are not so important and some of them are really important. And just helping clinicians identify or the prescribers identify which are the most important of those is also probably really helpful in just terms of prioritizing what to focus on. Yeah, that's a really good point. We can't leave a note on everything or you guys are going to get sick of reading our notes. But if we prioritize the most important thing and also make a case for it, but leave it short and simple so you have time to read it, that's probably going to be more effective than leaving, you know, a really long note on a bunch of changes and how many of them are that impactful, you know? Short and simple is definitely good. Yeah. Yeah. 20 pages on every resident. You know, that's that's not going to help at all. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I've learned that leaving recommendations or asking for a diagnosis in just one sentence or saying hemoglobin is this, can we DC iron? Just as brief as possible, it seems to help with um, the provider accepting my recommendations for sure. I think most providers like short attention span teenagers, and that might sort of be a good frame for thinking about how, <laughs> how directive and brief it can be helpful to be. Yeah. 
Well, oh, I, don't, yeah, I, I don't fault you at all, though, because, you know, I tell our team all the time, if I was having to read all your letters that you're sending, I want like a sentence. That's that's what I want. You know, so I don't yeah. fault you. I guess I'm right there with you on a short attention span. <laughs> so, well, thank you, uh, S-Dog, for joining us today. <laughs> and I hope to see S-Dog appear on your future publications, because that would just be amazing. But we appreciate you joining us on the show today. It's been great. You've you've given us a lot to think about as clinicians, as people out there in the field. And so we appreciate your time and we thank you again. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for tuning in to episode three of the Long-Term Care Pharmacy podcast. We truly appreciate your support. And to end this episode, boy, do we have a treat for you. The one and only Scott Stewart is going to sing Come Deeper Scribe, a parody to the tune of Come Sail Away by Styx. Hope you all enjoy. I'm staring at a chart. How can anyone be on this many meds? Deprescribing is an art But on this patient you can start anywhere Benadryl or Reglan Oxybutanin Five different pain meds Including Oxycontin And I want to reduce their meds To nine or less Come de-prescribe, come de-prescribe, come de-prescribe with me Come de-prescribe, come de-prescribe, come de-prescribe with me